Good morning, Redeemer. Good to be together. I um, been away for three weeks in the States. It was a good time. We went to many churches. We were in a number of settings that were wonderful. The conference where the book was released. You know, C.S. Lewis said the closest thing a man gets to having a baby is uh, publishing a book, uh, birthing a book. So that, that's been a... Uh, I was talking to Lizzie the other day on the phone, and she told me, well, you've actually beat your wife. <laughs> uh, I've got four. Uh, I truly thought about you every hour. I can't believe what God is doing here. And I just wanted you to know that for all the wonderful things that happened while I was away, you were on my heart and in my prayers. Because I believe this is one of the most amazing gatherings in the world. Where people have come together from all tribes and nations and tongues as a demonstration, just a hint of what will happen one day in Revelation 7-9 when every t- tribe and tongue and nation gather together to praise God's name. So I want you to know how beautiful you are as you come together like that. It's an amazing, amazing thing. I was so grateful while I was there to hear that John Fulmer announced at UCCD that I was in the hospital with back pain and uh, that uh, I, was, I was grateful for the prayers of many people. I received many emails, many from you. Just one problem, I was not in the hospital, (laughs) and my back was fine. But keep praying, keep praying. Grateful for your prayers. Uh, Don't let a silly thing like just some rumor stop you from praying for me. Have you been following the uh, Icelandic volcano? Wow. This this volcano has been as disruptive as it is hard to pronounce. (laughs) Uh, Anyone from Iceland here? No? Uh, well, good, because I'm going to try and say the name. It's uh, A, you forgot la yogurt. A, you forgot la yogurt, which sounds a lot like a New Yorker saying, hey, you forgot the yogurt. <laughs> it's been unbelievably difficult. I mean, uh, the, the pain re- wreaking havoc on travel. We actually, when we were flying back to Dubai, had to fly south of the, uh, the plume of ash and smoke and added hours to our travel, and we were the lucky ones. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people who were grounded. Some of you were experiencing that personally. The cost of this volcanic ash is up to 1.7 billion U.S. dollars. Hard to imagine. Even the most powerful have been affected. The uh, dignitaries of state who were to travel to the funeral for the president of Poland from the tragic a Russian airplane crash were unable to make the funeral. Anger is high. The ash is now clearing, but the blame game is just starting. How do you, who do you blame for a volcano? <laughs> I'm sure someone will find a way. It, it will happen, I promise you. I know who to blame. One volcano, one plume of ash punctures our illusions that we are in control. Don't you think? It's as if God is himself reminding us that we're not so powerful, not as powerful as we think. We're not that much in control. This morning, I want to look at a man who thought he was in control and was not. His name was Jacob. He's one of the most important figures in the Old Testament, the father of the twelve tribes of the Jewish nation, Israel. Though he was successful by 
the measure of success for his day, he's one of the most unsavory patriarchs. He lied. He stole. He conned. He deceived. His story is the first recorded story of identity theft. I'm a low-tech identity theft with goat hair. His family was contentious at best, murderous at worst. He lived in exile for much of his life and years of hard labor because of broken relationships. And one day, bad family circumstances, so typical for Jacob, forced him home. There was just one problem. As he approached the land of Canaan, as he began to get home, he gets word that Esau, his brother, is riding to greet him with 400 horsemen. When he had left, he remembered the murderous threats of Esau. And he panics. Jacob panics. The text says in Genesis 32, he was terrified. It was not just for his life either. It was for the sake of his his entire young family. And much like the volcano in Iceland, Jacob discovers he's not as in control as he thought. So he prays. He's not been a praying man. It's not particularly uh, a, a thing that Jacob had done much. In fact, his relationship with God had been a bit suspect anyhow. He He kind of even uses God for his own ends, like telling his father when he's deceiving his old blind father that God had given him success or wondering how God might bless him to get him out of his jams. But in this case, in Genesis 32, there's a sense that he prays a humble prayer. I am an unworthy servant, in verse 10. Of all the kindness and faithfulness, you, O God, have shown your servant... I only had a staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers of their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. You know, it's been said there are no atheists in foxholes. Have you heard that? This is kind of, a, this is kind of one of those prayers. Never mind that Jacob's never been a religious man. It's a foxhole prayer. The prayer of a man under siege. But in one sense, Jacob fears the wrong thing. He fears Esau. Who he needs to fear is the Lord God Jehovah, God Almighty. For it is God Almighty who comes to him. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 32. We're going to look at 10 verses, starting in verse 22. It's an odd, odd passage of Scripture. It's short, but extremely important. So follow along with me. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? 
Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It was because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Now, I want you to get the picture of what's going on here. Jacob has come to this place where he enters into the promised land. He takes everything at this ford, at this small stream, and he sends them over. All of his family, his large extended family, his maidservants, everyone, and all his possessions, they go over the stream. And once everything is gone, this man comes and wrestles with him. And we have to ask the question, Why? What is this? What's this about? Why is God, in the form of this man, wrestling with Jacob? It's clearly not because God wants to hurt Jacob. If God had wanted to, he could have fallen on Jacob like a terrier on a rat and dispatched him with with ease. I mean, obviously, just the touch of this man wrenches his hip. It's interesting, Rembrandt painted a picture of this very, uh, this very event. And it's difficult to tell if it's a wrestling match or an embrace. And I think Rembrandt got it right. There's a sense here of mercy. Tim Keller suggests that, that perhaps the reason God comes like this to Jacob is to show that God is personal. That God is not just the abstracted, far-off, academic God of, of, of Abraham and Isaac, his father, but a God for Jacob as well. And I think he's right. But I think it has much more to do with the fact that Jacob's whole life was one big wrestling match. That this wrestling match is a microcosm of Jacob's life. And God wanted Jacob to see it. So God initiates a wrestling match for Jacob's sake. After all, the thing, God had, that, the thing that Jacob had wrestled for all his life was a blessing. That's why he had struggled all his life. He wanted to be blessed. All his deception, all his cons, all his lies, all his theft was to live a life that he saw as the best blessed life. So even though God picked the fight, it was Jacob, Jacob who was desperate to hold on. After wrestling all night, even after being wounded in the fight, he calls out to God for a blessing. He fights to be blessed. I will not let you go unless you bless me, Jacob says. It's then that God asks him a question. What's your name? Now, don't think that God has forgotten Jacob's name. (laughs) This is is a question not for God. It's for Jacob. You remember from the the scripture that, that Brian presented for us? The last time someone asked Jacob for his name, what did he say? Esau, right? To his old blind father... He had lied. Are you really my son Esau? Isaac asked. Yes, I am, lied Jacob. God takes 
Jacob back to the lie which sent his life into a tailspin. That's the whole point of this wrestling match. To bring him to that point of who he really was. This point of identity theft. To point out who Jacob really was before the Holy God. Not to lie about who he is, but to declare who he is. I'm Jacob, he says in the wrestling match. Jacob means deceiver. I am deceiver. I'm usurper. I'm liar. I'm thief. So when Jacob says his name, he is owning who he is. Ultimately, Jacob must understand that all blessing comes on God's terms, not our terms. God's terms. It's the point of conversion for Jacob. Well, what does this have to do with us, right? <laughs> this is an old story and a little odd. And Well, I, I would say that it, it's more relevant than next week's newspaper. And it's, it, it helps us see in three important ways. It helps to see God and ourselves. It helps us with that, to understand who we are in our relationship with God. It also helps us to see Christ. And thirdly, it helps us to see how to respond when we put those things together. First, it helps us see God and ourselves. You too, you too will have this personal, loving God come to you. No matter how long it takes. He will wrestle with you. It will be an odd sort of wrestling. Like when I wrestled with my sons when they were young, you know? <laughs> so they would, they would come into the room and they'd see me on the floor and they'd attack, right? And jump on me. And they just weighed 25 pounds, you know? And I could have crushed them. But it was, it was, the, it was the fierce, roar I roared, you know, and took them down, Right? And yet, they sometimes would rise up and put me down, right? You know that wrestling? That kind of fierce and loving wrestling? That's, that's the wrestling of God. You may feel that you're in charge of your life. But just as the Lord of heavens whistles for a volcano, you can count on this God coming to you. Perhaps it's in a crisis. Perhaps it's in that place you fear most. Your own personal Esau in your life. What is it for you? What, what is Esau in your life? That thing that brings terror. Sickness? The loss of a job? Fears about those who might hurt you or hurt the ones you love. These are the most common of human experiences. Perhaps it comes to you as simply as a sermon while you sit in a chair in a ballroom of a hotel. I was speaking to a young mother uh, at, a, at a dinner and um, I asked her about her spiritual journey. And she started by saying, when God brought cancer into my life, I could barely hear the rest of her story was so powerful. I was awed by the robustness of her faith. 
You know, I'm so tired of mushy Christianity. I'm so tired of it. This insipid faith that believes that we're not so bad and the cross wasn't so great. No, that's, that's not who we are. Well, whatever it is, in that moment when God comes to you, for He is personal still, and grabs your soul and wrestles you to the ground, He will ask you one simple question. What is your name? What's your name? And will you lie to the Lord of hosts? Will you? Will you stand before your Creator God and tell Him you're Esau? You'll tell Him you're something else? I hear it all the time. This responses that we have to this holy, loving God. Will you say, I'm a good person? No, Jesus said, no one is good but God alone. I can live independent of God. No, you were made for God. I can handle life's hard times. Can you? Oh. No, it's not true. Not really. Who of us would act so pridefully as to lie lie before the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the universe, our maker and creator? Well, the answer is all of us. (laughs) All of us. Maybe it's the wrong way to ask the question. Is there anything more silly or more arrogant or more prideful than to lie to the Lord of hosts? Another another kid's story. I remember my my son sitting in their high chair. And uh, it was time for dinner, and I'm feeding them dinner. And uh, suddenly, anyone with a two-year-old, 24 months, knows that uh, arms crossed, fierce determination... No beans. You know, the, the no beans. You know, it's like, where did that come from? I didn't teach him that. This willful, arrogant, proud determination to run his own life. He can't even walk. And he stares me down. And you know what? I'm embarrassed. Sometimes he won. He beat me. He wrestled with me. You know that? You know what that's like? Listen, we're no different. We've got trickier words, a bigger vocabulary. But we're no different before the Lord of hosts. So we come to this place, this place where we must acknowledge who we are. What is your name? Who are you? You know, the greatest sin in Jacob's life was not the lying, the cheating, the stealing. It was the clear rejection of God in his life. The desire to live life on Jacob's terms, not God's terms. To reject the blessing God offered. You know, sometimes, sometimes I wrestle with the, the fact that God chose this rat, Jacob, to be one of the greatest biblical characters of all times. But I realize, I realize actually, no, it, it should give me and you hope. If, if God can use Jacob, he can use us. I'm a rat. I'm a rat too. So are you. We all are. I'm ashamed of my sins, how willing I am to sacrifice those closest to me to satisfy my ambitions to live life on my terms. 
We sinfully try to live life on our terms. And in so doing, we establish ourselves as God. What was that first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Jacob had been wrestling for a blessing all, all his life. And I know so many who do the same thing in life now. You have longed for a blessed life. But you want it on your own terms. And ultimately, it doesn't work. The danger is, when we try to live life on our terms, we lie to ourselves about who we are. We try to convince that we're someone we're not. We try to take on another identity. But the fact is, unless we face our sin, unless we take ruthless views of the depth of our sin, we will not understand God's grace and love and mercy. I mean, one of, one of the keys to making sure we have a robust Christianity and not an insipid one is to make sure we understand how deeply, deeply sinful we are so that we understand the great forgiveness that God offers us. So when Jacob owns his true nature, understands his true position before a holy God and asks for mercy, he gets it. Now no, notice that principle. Act as if you're in charge. God resists. Humble yourself before the living God. God grants mercy. Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Understand that you can see the grace and love of God in all its fullness only when we see our sin. After this encounter uh, between the man, the God, Jacob understands that he's come face to face with God and he's lived. Now, we know who it was who wrestled with Jacob. Even though Jacob doesn't, doesn't know, we know. This is Christ, the captain of the hosts. Which brings us to point two. This story helps us see Christ. We've been going through this series whenever I speak about seeing Christ in the Old Testament. And we've been saying that as you read the, the Old Testament, you see the autobiography of Jesus. You're actually reading the autobiography of Jesus. And there's many, many examples of this. Last time I spoke on Genesis 22, we looked at Abraham and Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac, and a Christ image there. This is another Christ image. The person that Jacob wrestles with is Jesus, unnamed. There's a fancy, uh, fancy seminary term for this called a Christophany, the unnamed appearance of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And it's in this story we see a number of hints of the gospel. That Christ would be fully God and fully man. That's why there's this confusion about, is he man or is he God? Christ was fully man and fully God. We see dual images of Jesus, the duality of God and man. We see it in the images in the text. I mean, think about Esau, firstborn, unjustly wronged, coming again as if in second coming as judge. But the most important thing to here to see about the image of Jesus, as Jacob rightly says, is that he saw him face to face and lived. Jacob's you know, right about that. 
but how could it happen? I mean, you might as well be picked up and expect to survive if you're thrown in some Icelandic volcano as to see God and live. That's how holy and just he is. But the reason, the reason, friends, Jacob could see God face to face is because of the cross. You know, Christ wrestled too. Christ wrestled. It was about the cross. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he wrestled with God. Oh God, is there another way? And unlike Jacob, unlike Jacob, at the end of the wrestling, he took the full wrath of God, the full brunt of God on the cross in judgment. It was at the cross, you see, that Jesus took our sins upon himself so that we can approach God and live. A way has been made back to a holy God for sinful people such as Jacob and me and you. It's the place where the wrath of God in judgment and the love of God and the sacrifice of His Son come together on that cross for all people at all times so that we could receive a blessing. The, the greatest blessing of all. You know, one of the ironies about Jacob's life and his struggle to get a blessing all his life was that it had been promised to him at his birth. If Jacob had just kind of trusted God all of his his life, he would have had everything he strove for and more probably. The greatest blessing God offers us is his presence through his son the crucified and resurrected Lord. Not material comfort, not personal peace and security. The blessing of God is God Himself. Which brings us to our third point, finally. The story helps us see how to respond. After it's all over, after the cries for mercy in the face of Esau, after wrestling with God about his sin, after understanding that he has come face to face with a living God and lives Jacob is never the same again. It's a conversion. There is only one way for you to meet God face to face and live too. It's to know the one who took the wrath of God upon himself. And here's his terms. His way. His terms. He offers a blessing to us if we will but repent and believe. Does that sound too simple? (laughs) Too easy? Well, if you think about it, not if we're as willful as my sons were in their high chair. The blessing for us is when we do that, He will call you His child. That He has provided a way back to God through the death of Christ by faith alone. Just like Jacob, there's a conversion that needs to happen in our lives. We stop putting our faith and trust in ourselves and we start putting our faith and trust in the risen Lord who lives today. Jacob cried for mercy, so we must cry for mercy. 
Jacob needed to see his sin. So we must see our sin. And when Jacob owns his true nature and understands his true position before a holy God and repents of his unbelief and asks for mercy, he gets it. It happens in his life, and so will we. I've mentioned this principle, act as if you're in charge. God resists, humble yourself. God grants mercy. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus illustrated that particularly in the New Testament in Luke chapter 18. He said that he was speaking to those who were confident of their own righteousness. Two men went to the temple to pray. One, the religious leader, the Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood in the temple and prayed thusly. I thank you, God, that I'm not like these other men, robbers, evildoers, thieves, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the other man stood at a distance, beat his breast. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that that man went home justified before God. The other man, it's implied, perished. Now I'm I'm astounded as we think about what it means to come to God on His terms. But it's not about praying and acting religious. It's about pleading for mercy for who we really are. Most of his life, Jacob despised the offer of grace from God. I want to beg you not to despise the greatest gift you could ever receive from God. It's offered to you too. If you will but turn from unbelief and hand your life over to God. The offer of the blessing is Christ's forgiveness purchased on the cross for you. So, Put your life in His hands. We're not that much in charge of anything anyhow. You might as well. It only takes one big cloud of dust to remind us of that, right? Right. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we... We think back thousands and thousands of years to Jacob and we recognize, Lord God, that we are not that different, we are not that far off in the human experience. And we would pray, O oh God, that, that we would come to you on your terms because we know you have not changed. You are the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And you still come to us personally in the midst of all our pain and suffering, in the midst of all the joys and beauty of the world and you ask us who we are. And so Lord, we we pray that you would give us the kind of awareness that only comes from that question that we need to be with you that we need to be forgiven, that we need your mercy, O oh God. I pray, Father, that we would be a people marked by this kind of faith.
that we would put our complete faith and trust in you. In the name of the one who died that we might know you, Jesus our Lord. Amen.